And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Stacey Abrams took the political world by storm in 2018 when she nearly pulled off the upset of the year in a Georgia governor's race. She narrowly lost to Republican Brian Kemp. Yes, that Brian Kemp in a race that was marred by charges of voter suppression. Abrams, who had been the Democratic leader in the Georgia House, not only would have been the first female governor of African-American descent in her state's history, but the first in American history. Abrams also has an amazing personal story, and I sat down with her this week to talk about it, her current mission to protect voting rights, Kemp and COVID-19, and her interest in becoming Joe Biden's VP. One note, this was a virtual conversation, and that means old Fumblefingers here was left to be his own technician. And so uh, the content is great, as is Stacy's audio. Mine, eh, not so much. There was a great conversation, and here it is. Stacey Abrams, it's very good to see you virtually. How are you doing in all of this? I assume you're home in Georgia. I am, and I'm I'm lucky. My parents are about 20 minutes away. My youngest sister is 10 minutes from them. My One of my younger brothers is about 20 minutes the other direction. And I have a sister in Kentucky and a brother in California, and then a younger, one of my other sisters. There are a lot of us. We're close to each other enough that we can see each other when we need to, and we can stay in touch, but everyone's safe. Good, good, good. Speaking of safe, I know you've been talking about this a lot in the last 24 hours, but Governor Kemp, the man who uh, defeated you narrowly in the election 2018 for governor, has been one of the most aggressive in unwinding or or announcing that he's going to unwind stay-at-home orders. And he's authorized the reopening of businesses, including massage parlors and fitness centers and bowling alleys for for some reason. I don't know if everybody's going to wash their hands in between rolls. But my question to you is, what are the implications of that for Georgia? And are you concerned about it? I'm deeply concerned, as I've expressed last night and today. We have to think about what Georgia is. Georgia's the eighth largest state in the country. So we're dealing with about 10 and a half million people. We have the seventh slowest testing rate and the 14th highest infection rate. The city of Albany at one point, and it may still be true, had the fourth highest uh, coronavirus infection rate in the world. And two weeks ago, the governor discovered that the state needed to take aggressive actions to flatten the curve and protect its people. Two weeks later, he has decided the experiment is working well enough that he's willing to restart the very behaviors that are the most dangerous. I've never heard of a long-distance tattoo. I do not know people who wash their hands in between bowling frames. But the, the more insidious part of what he's doing is that he claims this is to support small business owners, and, and that may be true. But the frontline workers tend to be low-wage workers who right now, because they are furloughed or cannot go to work, can collect unemployment and protect themselves. And instead of fixing an unemployment system that is not processing people fast enough, His response is to send those people back to the front lines without the protective equipment that they need, without any assurances that the owners that they will work for will actually do what they're supposed to, and with very limited ability to to complain. Because these very people, if they are forced back to work, 
if they complain about their treatment, if they complain that there is noncompliance, they run the real risk of being fired, which means that these are people who have the least amount of power in our system, the greatest amount of vulnerability, and the least amount of resilience. This is a terrible decision that does not speak well of the governor or of his concern for human life. Are the local mayors resisting this? They're very angry. Uh, The mayor of Atlanta, the mayor of Savannah, the mayor of Albany have all expressed deep concern about this because in Georgia, the governor's order supersedes their state-at-home orders. And so in Albany, where 80% of the cases are African-American, according to one estimate, he is unable to protect his people because the governor's order supersedes what he has said. And the largest city in the state, the, go- the mayor of Atlanta, didn't get, a con- didn't get a call. She was told that this is going to happen. And so the deep concern is not only is he putting people's lives in jeopardy, he's not even consulting the experts that he convened. Members of his own task force learned about it from his press conference, not from a call from him. You know, you raise an issue that that has become so glaring. This this whole uh, crisis has sort of held a lens up to our country. And what we've seen is a much higher mortality rate among African-Americans, a much uh, higher mortality rate among the poor. And these are structural issues. This is not just happenstance, but the effect of long-term institutional biases that have conspired against them. Absolutely. One of the challenges in Georgia that I have been screaming from the rafters about since 2013 and before, but 13 was the year it became official that we would take no action, is that Georgia has one of the weakest public health infrastructures in the country. We have one of the highest rates of closures of rural hospitals. We have a doctor shortage. We have a nursing shortage. And in rural counties, you have an absolute inability to reach doctors. We have a number of counties without a single physician. And you have to understand, Georgia is the single largest landmass state east of the Mississippi. So when we say there's no one in a county, that could mean that you have to drive one to two to three hours to get to see a doctor, assuming you can get an appointment. We have one county where the only doctor got sick and could not treat the very patients that she needed to treat. And so The structural inequities are real, but they're not endemic solely to Georgia. The Native American community is being deeply harmed because of their lack of access to services. And the same thing is true for the Latino populations. And the common thread is a structural system that has disadvantaged and ignored the needs of these communities and the concomitant social pathologies of poverty, race, and simply a distaste for service for these communities because they haven't had the political ability to demand what they need. You know, uh, another way in which these communities have been uh, burdened has been voting rights. And I know you are deeply, deeply involved in this issue. You have been for a long time uh, and you've uh, redoubled your efforts since 2018. Your opponent, now the governor, was the secretary of state. A lot of questions about how that election was administered. But again, the, the problems that you saw in Georgia speak to problems that go beyond Georgia's borders in terms of voter suppression and other techniques that seem designed to, calculated to, uh, reduce participation by people of of color. And I ask you all of that because we're now faced with this new situation 
uh, where you have an additional barrier potentially to voting. The CDC director said today he saw another wave coming in the winter, but November is not that far from the winter. And so the notion that people are going to be able to go to polling places is very much in question. How worried are you about this? And do you see this? The president has said he resists all notion of write-in balloting, even though he casts his by mail because he says it opens things up to fraud. But he also said, hey, if we go that route, we'll never elect a Republican again, which seems like a more honest window into his thinking. But how big a problem is this going to be in November? And how encouraged or discouraged are you by what is happening now? There was $400 million that was apportioned by Congress for this less than was asked for. Where are we on this? Fundamentally, voting is about power. It's the power to hire the people who set the agenda, distribute resources, and organize our communities. It's a collective decision that we've made that we will go to the polls and the majority will get to pick who we have. That's the underpinning of a civil society. It's the underpinning, underpinning of the liberal democratic order. But it is only real when eligible citizens actually have the right to participate. And we have been fighting this battle since the inception of our nation. What's happened in the last 20 years has been an acceleration by the right to constrict access to the vote because they no longer believe that they can persuade the demographic majority of the country to agree with their idea. So so let's start with that as the baseline. What we face with COVID-19 is an exacerbation of but also a concentration of the challenge that we face in this country, the challenge that voters in Georgia faced in 2018, the voters in Ohio and Wisconsin and Florida have continually faced. And that is an artificial attempt to break the connection between being a citizen and having the right to express your views and choose your leaders. What we are pushing for in the vote-by-mail compulsion that we're trying to lift up. What you're hearing that we need in the next CARES package is this. Vote by mail is one way to ensure that we have safe, accessible voting. And it is coupled with voting in person. There is no legitimate reason to remove both unless you're a state that has been doing this for so long, you have solved for the issues of mass in-person voting. And so instead what we have is that we have to imagine 100 people crowding into a polling place on election day where some number of those people may or may not be asymptomatic and where COVID is not gone. The goal is to get at least 75% of those people out of line, get 75 of them out of line. And the way to accomplish that is to allow them to vote by mail. Every state in our nation has the capacity for vote by mail. The issue is making sure it's affordable and that the excuses are lifted, the requirement for excuses are lifted in the states that limit who have access. But of the remaining 25, you want at least 10 of them to vote early, because if you can spread out their timing, then you can limit the likelihood that they're going to infect one another, and you can limit the number of personnel that you need in order to serve them. So by the time you get to election day, the only people who need to be voting in person are those who have no other choice, the disabled, the displaced, the homeless, people with language barriers, those who or those who tried to vote by mail but weren't allowed to do so for some reason. 
when Donald Trump says he doesn't want vote by mail, he says it despite the fact that he has used it himself. And he dislikes it despite the fact there is no evidence of fraud. We have had this form of voting for decades. The challenge that he sees is that it will increase the likelihood of those who are confined to home actually using that time to participate in the election. And anytime a leader is afraid of people speaking their minds and making their selections, he is illegitimate and should not hold office. So, Stacey, speaking of voting rights and the battle for that fundamental right to go and choose and hire your leaders, this isn't a new thing, not just for you, but your family. I mean, among the you say people have been voting for it for generations. Among them were uh, your folks, Carolyn and Robert Abrams, who are from Mississippi. They're from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which actually is kind of hallowed ground in the civil rights movement. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee actually launched a voter registration drive there in 1962. And all through that, the next, the subsequent years, Hattiesburg was like a, a locus for the whole voting rights uh, movement in Mississippi and beyond. So you, you must have heard much, a lot about this uh, as a child. Absolutely. Both of my parents as teenagers were very involved in the civil rights movement. My dad was arrested at the age of 14 or 15. He was arrested helping people register to vote. Uh, we like to tease him that my mom was doing the same work. She just didn't get caught. But they raised us to understand that the right to vote wasn't simply about the act of voting. It was the power that was connected to it. And, and that's what I, I try to emphasize, because we have to realize, as you do, that when you vote, you're deciding whether you get access to health care. You decide how long prison sentences are. You're deciding whether your road gets paved and whether your neighbors get their trash picked up. You're deciding whether we tackle climate change or not. And as long as we make it an abstraction, just an act, then we remove the connection that people need to feel. Uh, my parents would take us with them to vote. We would, and there are six of us, and so we would be like make way for ducklings as we trailed out of the voting booth. But they wanted us to see them. And they talked to us about the lives we lived. They would take us to volunteer. And they made sure we understood. The volunteering that we did, the work that we did, happened in part because the people who were elected to help weren't doing their jobs. Our responsibility was to step into the gap. And I decided to take it a step further and try to fix the system itself. They also saw a great deal of bloodshed in Mississippi. The people who gave their lives in order to secure the right to vote for people of color, people who were uh, shut out there. Um, everyone remembers the assassination of Edgar Evers, the NAACP leader in Mississippi. I'm sure he, he was someone they were familiar with. But let's talk about your folks. Uh, your mom was a librarian. And it seems to me, as I look at your story, that that was a really formative thing in your own life books. And, you know, I look at your siblings. I mean, it's just, it is kind of a remarkable thing. You're, you've got a sister who's a federal judge, a brother who's a social worker, uh, an older sister who's an anthropologist. Uh, your younger sister is an evolutionary biologist who works at the CDC. So she must be watching this all with clinical as well as human interests. I mean, you're a formidable family. Your, your brother, Walter, attended Morehouse University. We're going to talk about him a little bit more later, but this has to be the influence of your folks and your mom's uh, life as a librarian. She must have introduced you guys to the world through those books. 
You know, my, my mom literally um, had me nap in the stacks. So I remember waking up to the smell of books. We went to a, a daycare that was on campus. And when the daycare closed and mom still had to work, she would bring us back to the library. Uh, she was a college librarian. She made certain that we were surrounded by books. We had World Book Encyclopedia, and they had this thing called Trial Craft, which is sort of the children's version of the encyclopedias. And one of my missions as a kid was to read all of them and then to read encyclopedias. It was, I was a very boring child in some ways. But my, what my mom nurtured in all of us was curiosity. It's why I have one sister who's you know an evolutionary biologist, basically a zoologist, and a sister who's an anthropologist. We go from A to Z. Each of us developed our own curiosity. And, and, and I want to bring my dad into it only because my dad was dyslexic. So my father did not, wasn't, wasn't functionally literate until his 30s. But even he would celebrate the storytelling that was also part of reading because he understood that your ability to understand what happens to people, how they live their lives, how they express their dreams, helps you serve them better. And my mom was more formal with it because she would make sure we read as widely and as deeply as we could. But together, their partnership was truly about making certain we didn't isolate ourselves from humanity, but that we understood their stories in written form as well as in person by doing the service work that they wanted us to do. They didn't have an easy life. You're, you're, despite the fact your mom had this job, your father was a ship worker, I guess, but you've spoken before about the fact that you guys were flirting with poverty all the time. And so it makes that sort of commitment to you and your development so much uh, richer, you know, as to you know, talk about great stories. So the story about you is that you became this voracious reader to the point where you'd go to school and they'd want you to read Dick and Jane books and you're already into chapter books and you're, you're like very politely saying, you know what, I'm way beyond this. So <laughs> how did that play? I, I, I was precocious. I got in trouble. I think I'm the only one of my siblings who almost got kicked out of kindergarten because I would got tired of waiting for kids to figure it out. So I would give other children the answer so we could move to the next thing. I was sent to not the principal's office, but I was a teacher's aide at like four and five because they just needed me out of the room. You know, you, we talked about one form of discrimination, which was voting rights. But you as a child experienced some brutal lessons. As this precocious child, you were selected to go to a national conference for the Girl Scouts when you were 12 years old. And you were the only African-American child who was going, which didn't sit well with others from Mississippi. And they changed their plane flight and basically tried to leave you behind. And you ended up flying alone to this conference. How does a 12-year-old process that? It, I, I think one of the benefits was that I truly hadn't processed the question of what flight was. I just knew I was angry that they left me behind. And I have two remarkable parents who decided I was self-possessed enough to get on that plane. I think my parents had the names of every person on the flight, including, you know, not only the pilot and all the flight attendants, but anyone who cleaned the bathroom. Like, they got all the names. But they wanted me to understand that my responsibility was not to simply be angry, that you have to prove, not to yourself to others, but you have to prove to yourself what you're capable of. 
And they asked me, are you sure you want to do this? And I said I was, and they let me get on that plane. And it was worth it because when I got to Arizona, the fact that those kids, and I, and I doubt their children had anything to do with it. It was their parents. Yeah, you, we learn these things. We, we're not born that. Exactly. And, and my responsibility was not to hold them accountable, but to make certain they saw that despite this behavior, that wasn't going to stop me from being a part of this larger group that truly meant the world to me. Being a Girl Scout was an extraordinary experience. And allowing someone else's prejudice to rob me of that joy would have done myself a disservice. You know, you had another experience. You guys moved to Georgia and you had another experience that kind of fits in the same category. You, you were, as we've already established, kind of a brainiac and you did very well in high school and you were the valedictorian. And there was a reception at the governor's mansion for high school valedictorians and your, your, I assume your parents driving there and your car broke down. And you had to, uh, you had to, I guess, take public transportation or walk. But you arrived by foot uh, for this reception, and the uh, guards at the gate simply wouldn't accept that you were one of the valedictorians. So my parents, uh, you know, we were working poor when we were in Mississippi. By the time we got to Georgia, we were just poor. Uh, my parents were both; they were grad students studying to get their masters of divinity. And the one car we did have broke down, so we spent most of our first years in Georgia taking the bus. And so we arrived at the governor's mansion on the bus. We get off the bus and we walk across the street and up the driveway, avoiding the other cars. And the guard can see that we came off of the bus. He can see that we're not in the nice cars and not so nice cars. And he looks at me and he looks at my parents and he says, you don't belong here. My dad says, no, this is my daughter. She's one of the valedictorians. And the guard doesn't ask my mom for the invitation. I just remember him looking at that bus pulling away and just this look of disbelief and disgust. And all I wanted in life was to run after that bus, but my mom had my arm in a death grip. And I was you know, reminded by my parents in the very intense way they defended me. They told this man, they're like, you need, you're making a mistake. This this is our child. She belongs here. And while they were studying to become pastors, they were not ministers yet. <laughs> so my father's language was a bit more direct, but he eventually checked the checklist and my name was on it. And it was purely his sense of what I could have possibly been because I got off of a bus instead of arriving in a vehicle. And it could have been a story about my race or about my class, but all I remember of that day, I do not remember meeting the governor of Georgia. I, I just, and I, you know, I'm sure he was perfectly lovely. I'm sure the canapes were tasty. But all I remember is that moment with that guard and how little, how small he tried to make me feel. But I also remember the fact that my parents wouldn't let him scare me away from what I'd earned. And, and that's created a bit of a, I think it's a challenging part of my personality to some. Because when you have seen people doubt you because of what they see and what they expect, I know that my responsibility is to not let that stand because the next person may not have Robert and Carolyn Abrams standing with her. They may not have people to defend them. And so my job is to be the person who says, no, you can't do that. You're not going to be allowed to dismiss me because of your, your prejudices. 
We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Well, you went to Spelman College, which is a historically black college. Uh, and right around the time you arrived there was a, a time of upheaval because of the Rodney King police beating in Los Angeles that really reverberated across the country. This was the beginning uh, because of video uh, of people seeing what hadn't been seen before. And you were involved in protesting that. Tell me about that period of time, because I know it, it culminated in you going to a town hall meeting with Maynard Jackson, the first African-American mayor of Atlanta, and uh, you, you, you gave him no quarter on this issue. So I was a freshman at Spelman. I was not only an academic nerd, I was a public policy nerd. I used to go to city council meetings. I would go to zoning meetings. I was deeply concerned because Spelman sat across the street in fact, the entire Atlanta University Center, so Spelman College, Morehouse College, Clark Atlanta University, Morris Brown College, and then the two graduate schools, the Theological Center and the Morehouse School of Medicine, sat across from some of the poorest communities in Georgia, one of the oldest housing projects. And I knew, you know, but for the grace of God, that's where I would have been instead of across the street behind the gates of Spelman. And there was a proliferation of liquor stores in the neighborhood, and I, I wanted to understand how this happened, so I went to city council meetings. By the time the Rodney King verdict came out in April, we were in the midst of finals, and there were, there were protests that broke out in those housing projects and in, those, in that community. And because we sit, sat cheek by jowl, the assumption was all of us were just running amok, and so Maynard Jackson cordoned off the Atlanta University Center area blocked off the exit from the interstate, tear gassed our campuses and the community. And it was, it was revolting. I was angry enough that I organized some students in my dorm to start calling all of the television stations trying to correct the record because they were misrepresenting what was happening. And after a while, they demanded to know who was calling because we were blocking the phone lines. And one of the students I'd enlisted said, who do we tell them? I said, just tell them you're Stacy." Just give them my name. So everyone was calling as Stacey Abrams. I did not think this through. So by the time we get to the end of the day, we have, I thought, made our point. I get summoned uh, and I'm invited to get in a police car and be taken by escort to this town hall meeting that was convened by the mayor and by, at the time, simulcast. No one on this call other than you and I will understand what a simulcast is, but that's when all the channels used to come together before cable was real. And so we go there and I'm in my nicest t-shirt and my cleanest jeans. And I tell the mayor that he is not doing enough for young people. And he pushes back and says, you know, what do I know? And I explain, I go to city council meetings. I sit in your zoning committee meetings and I know that you've dealt with a lot of communities, but there's nothing that is focused on the needs of youth violence and youth poverty. And he expressed to me his deep disinterest in my opinion, and he was much more effective at making his point. I was not duly chastened, but at least I stopped talking. But months later, he reached out through uh, Jeanetta Cole, who is the president of Spelman College, and offered me a job in the newly created Office of Youth Services. And did you take it? I did. I became the research assistant. I got to work on issues of youth poverty, 
uh, gang violence. I got to convene young people to have conversations about the policies they needed to see. I got to work with city council and understand how laws got made. And I, as you appreciate having been a reporter, learning about how city councils work <laughs> is an education in and of itself. Yeah, I was the city hall bureau chief for the Chicago Tribune during a very tumultuous time there, including the election of the first African-American mayor of uh, Washington. So, um, and I think, uh, honestly, I think local government is in some ways the most dynamic and interesting level of government because people are, you're dealing with the very fundamental life issues that people face. And there's no layers between you and them. So watching the mayor and city council deal with these issues and all the drama around it, boy, that was the greatest story I ever covered. So I, I appreciate what you're saying. You went off uh, uh, to the University of Texas. You, I should point out that you start off thinking you might want to be a physicist. But you went off to the Johnson School of Public Affairs and then on to Yale Law School. What knocked you off of the uh, science beat? I loved physics. I had an amazing professor, basically. He was getting his PhD at Georgia State when I was in high school. So I took Physics 1 and Physics 2 from him. I wrote a paper that he got published for me in the Journal of the Astronomical Society of the Atlantic, so the College Physics Journal for Georgia State. I was ready to go. I got to Spelman and I was ahead a by a class. And so I took a class at Morehouse College. The professor there was not convinced that women were going to be effective physicists. And he was very dismissive of my capacity. I refused his offer to drop the course, but it, it, it winnowed into my brain that maybe I wasn't capable of doing this. I, I was good in math. I wasn't great, but I was really good at physics. And I was also interested in a lot of other things. And when he made it difficult and I realized I'd have to take his course again or take another course from him, I, I let him convince me that what I knew of myself wasn't enough. And I decided not to pursue it. But I kept watching Star Trek and reading. And I was really good friends with all the other folks studying physics. And, and I regret making that decision. I think I was right to take my life in a different direction, but I was wrong to let him diminish my sense of what I could do. Yeah, I think we've lost a lot of fine scientists uh, and mathematicians because of conversations like that. Deeply regretful. Hopefully fewer of them are going on now than a few years ago when you confronted that. You, you went to Yale, and, and I assume that well, well, I should, I don't want to assume. I want to ask you, why the law? When I was a junior at Spelman, I had gone through multiple majors. So I realized I wasn't a physicist, but I also tried to be a chemist, a historian, an English major. I starred in the drama, um, the spring drama production, because I'd gone to performing arts high school as part of my high school matriculation. And I had gone through so many majors, they refused to let me declare a new major. And the dean made me write a paper about what I wanted to know when I eventually got out of Spelman College. And so I had actually created my own major for it was political science, economics and sociology, because what I realized I wanted to know was why poverty existed. And that meant understanding the sociology of a society that could allow this to, to happen and, and what happens to communities and to people when that's what they grapple with economics. So I could understand 
what should happen and what did happen and political science so I could understand the structures to fix it. When I got ready to apply for graduate school, the marriage of law and public policy seemed to me to be the strongest because you, yes, you need to know what should happen, but it's also important to understand how it happens and why and how you fix it. And in my mind, policy and law connected perfectly to make that clear. You know, Barack Obama, when he was a young organizer in Chicago, ultimately went off famously to Harvard Law School. But he said he, he did it because he realized after a few years that if he was going to be effective in helping people solve these problems, then he needed, as you're saying, to understand the processes by which laws were made, executed. So he wanted that tool to come back uh, with. And, and, and that's what you did. You, you took a detour as a, a tax attorney at a firm in Atlanta for a while. And I should point out another element of your ridiculous biography is that you, uh, you write uh, or, or wrote, I, you've been too busy lately, these romantic novels, a mystery, I guess they're romantic mystery novels. Is that a way? Romantic suspense is the term of art. Yeah. For me, romance was always suspenseful. <laughs> but this is a different kind of suspense. Um, and you've written eight of them while you were pursuing your other pursuits. Well, I, I want to go back to the tax law piece. My foray into tax law was very intentional. Because as I studied both policy and law, one thing I recognized was that the people most impacted by our tax policy tended to have the least amount of access to it or understanding of it. It is the most obscure area of law, and it has the greatest effect on how we live our lives. How we collect our taxes shapes how we spend our money. And I wanted to understand not just how policy was made, but tax policy undergirds almost every major decision from criminal justice to healthcare to our foreign policy. How we choose to tax and what we tax is the question. Yeah. Well, you see, I mean, to me, being on that end of it as a tax attorney is, is less about how we spend it and more about how it's collected and how inequitably it's collected. Because people hire tax attorneys uh, and accountants to try and figure out how to minimize their obligations. And if you are positioned to do that, you can, you can really game the system in a very legal way. Exactly. And my goal was to understand how they did it, but also to reverse engineer it so we could, I could figure out how to protect those who didn't know. I was a tax-exempt organization lawyer, so I ended up doing bond law. I did hospital finance. I did real estate. I was the Mikey of law, of tax law, because almost every entity that served the communities I cared about found themselves in the tax-exempt organization space. And because of that, and, and it fed into what I did when I got to the legislature, you're absolutely right. We spend so much time thinking about how we allocate money, how we appropriate it. But appropriation is often determined based on your collection theology. Your decisions about how you will raise the money will often predict how you are going to spend that money. And those who are willing to agitate to limit their collection are often going to be the loudest voices to advocate for the spending to be on their side as well. And so we need allies in the tax space who understand how they game the system so we can figure out how to unrig it for those who need the deepest service. 
So what's with the romance suspense novel? <laughs> so I, I love romance novels and I love suspense. I used to watch General Hospital religiously. Plus my, you know, we, all of my sisters, we read romance novels voraciously. My ex-boyfriend, so when I was a physicist, my ex-boyfriend in high school was a chemist. He went off and became a chemical physicist. We were still friendly and he sent me his dissertation. I read it and I thought this would make an amazing story. I actually wanted to be uh, an espionage writer. I wanted to be in the Jean Le Caire universe. And so the book I started to write was an espionage novel. I was at Yale when I was writing it and I had some friends who'd been in publishing and I asked them about the process of selling it. And they said, no one is going to buy it. Women don't read spy novels and men don't read spy novels by or about women. Plus, I was writing with my protagonist as an African-American woman, and this is at the tail end of the 90s, so you haven't had the burgeoning of suspense novelists or writers of women of color writing in, you know, this kind of, in that fiction space. And so I listened to them. I talked to a couple of uh, publishers I got put in touch with, and they echoed the concerns. So I made my spies fall in love, killed the same number of people. And I published it as a romance. They bought it, and then they bought two more, and then someone called me and said, we'd love to see what you could do with a serial killer romance novel. Wrote one of those and <laughs> kept writing until I became minority leader and ran out of time. Yeah, so let's talk about that. You ran for the legislature. Uh, what, what caused you to do that? And uh, just four years later, you became the minority leader. You, you, you mentioned it when we were talking about City Hall. I worked for one of the greatest mayors, I think, in the country, uh, Shirley Franklin, who understood the mechanics and administration of cities better than most people because she'd been a bureaucrat before she ran for office. She understood it wasn't enough to create the laws. You had to know how the laws actually got implemented. And I was privileged to serve as deputy city attorney in her administration in this new division that she created to bridge the gap between law and politics and policy. But what I saw was that for every innovative, thoughtful, creative idea she had to serve the most vulnerable in our communities, she was thwarted by the state because she was the first Democratic mayor of Atlanta under a Republican governor. And that meant that they were able to nullify almost every major effort she undertook. So I got to write the first uh, living wage law in Georgia. It was immediately crushed. We tried to do work on homelessness toward it. And what I realized was that at the state level, you had a lot of people who had come up through elected office. But you had very few people who were actually responsible for the execution of those laws at the bureaucratic level, not at the executive level, but at the bureaucratic level. But I also recognized that if I wanted to continue my service and grow my capacity, I needed to know how the state worked. So I ran for the state legislature. I served for four years. I was privileged to be on some fairly powerful committees early. I served on Ways and Means and Judiciary Non-Civil, which was part of the criminal justice work I was able to do when I got there. And I realized that we were in a fix as Democrats. We'd lost every statewide office in 2010. We had been decimated as a party. The person who got elected as the chair the year after I became leader ended up going to prison. We were bankrupt and we weren't growing. And so I told my, my colleagues when I stood for leader, it was a competitive race. And I said, look, I've been a minority for a very long time. I am really good at it. 
let me see if we can do this. And I had a 10-year plan for how we would rebuild and restore and grow the Democratic Party to get us to a position where by 2020, we would be a competitive state uh, for Democrats to win statewide and nationally. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You know, one of the things that interests me about your tenure in the legislature is that you were a target from the left and probably from the right as well, because you were, and I say this not pejoratively, a deal maker. You wanted that stuff done and you were willing to make compromises to do it. There was uh, there was the uh, question of the Hope Scholarship Program, college help for kids in Georgia with high GPAs, and you were willing to make some changes in that program that were unpopular in order to make trade-offs for early childhood education programs. Am I getting that right? You are. So the Hope Scholarship was going bankrupt. No one disagreed. Republicans had just cemented their control of all three branches of government. They had, they controlled the governor's mansion. They had a supermajority in the Senate. They were a handful of seats away in the House, but they knew this was a popular program, but it was running out of money. The governor's initial plan was to essentially cut off anyone below a certain GPA, but also to cut off funding for early childhood education, which was a critical part of the program. My response was to talk to to college professors and talk to the college presidents, ask them what they needed, but also talk to those who were defending the newest learners in our community, the most vulnerable. And they said, we need both. We can't have one and not the other. And so what I negotiated was a diminution in the amount of money that students got if they didn't hit the GPA. And and let's understand that this was roughly, this was a few thousand dollars. And and I'm not diminishing how important that was. But I also got a 1% low interest loan that you had 10 years to pay back that you could borrow to close the gap. So these weren't students who were left without any recourse. But at the same time, we preserve the investment. And here's my rationale. And this is how I approach politics and policy. These are real people. This isn't a game. There are using a moment as a political lever means that someone during the time you're hoping this will come to fruition suffers. Five-year-olds don't get a do-over. They don't get to go back and learn because four years later, you've maybe accomplished the three seats you wanted to pick up. I grew up as someone who was always the victim in our families. We were the victims of machinations where people thought, well, let me not do anything so I could hold out for everything. In those moments where politicians are gaming the system, people are suffering. And my responsibility isn't about deal-making in the pejorative sense, and I don't know that's not what you intended. It's making the deal that gets people the most they can have at the moment they need it while we work for more. That is how you make progress. That is how you serve people. You know, I had some experience with this when I, I mean, I've been mostly outside of government, but I spent two years in the White House with President Obama. And a part of that time was when we were fighting for the Affordable Care Act. And uh, I've said this before, you know, there are a lot of people uh, uh, on the left of the Democratic Party who said, do not 
move forward unless you get a public option in the Affordable Care Act. And we wanted a public option, the Affordable Care Act, but it was clear that we couldn't get it. And it was a choice between uh, what we got, which was substantial and nothing. And I run into people all the time who were helped by the Affordable Care Act, who continue to be helped by the Affordable Care Act. I wish that President Trump had allowed it to be sign up period to be reopened so that people who are losing their jobs right now could take advantage of the Affordable Care Act. But I would, I, my conscience would really bother me if I had to turn to those people and say, you know, we would have helped you, but we couldn't get everything we wanted. So we took nothing instead. That doesn't make sense to me. But this is a big debate, Stacey. You know this within the Democratic Party and, and frankly, within the Republican Party. There are absolutists on that side as well. But democracy demands something different, it seems to me. It, it has to. And part of the reason I'm so aggressive as a legislator and as someone who in the private sector is trying to get things done and what I've done in the nonprofit sector is I recognize that no one sector can fix all of our problems. And so we have to know how each of the levers work, how each of the sectors operate. And within each space, we have to get the most done for as many as possible as quickly as we can. Because a person who is hungry today does not care about the feast that could be there in a year or two years. They want to know, is there bread for me today? And our responsibility is to make sure we solve the problem in front of us and grow the capacity to solve the next problems. I want us to get to healthcare, universal healthcare. But in Georgia, I'm fighting for Medicaid for some. And part of my responsibility is that while I can have a vision and a plan, I have to recognize that there are steps between vision and execution, and you cannot sacrifice people on the altar of idealism when you don't have to suffer the consequences. That's the challenge that we have to really address. Yeah, no, I think it's a really serious debate. And I understand, look, I work with young people and they're impatient for change. And I'm, I, I so admire them for that. They're bursting with a sense of righteous indignation about the injustices that they see and they don't understand why we would compromise instead of fighting for the larger hall uh, on any given issue. But, and it's a hard lesson to say, you got, you know, you got to fight for these things and it's a long, hard slog step by step. Democracy doesn't work that way where you can change everything overnight. But it's, it's, this is a heated debate. We hear it. We've heard it in the presidential race. You ran for governor and you became a national figure through that governor's race. Interestingly, despite the, the discussion we just had, you were seen as kind of a left candidate in that race. Bernie Sanders endorsed you. You won a primary going away against one of your fellow uh, legislators. One of the philosophical questions in that election, just strategic questions, was is there a zero-sum game kind of choice to be made between concentrating on persuadable voters in suburban areas? And I think uh, attached to that is the presumption that these are probably white voters and uh, maximizing historically strong democratic constituencies like the African-American community, the Latino community, the uh, you know, the Asian community and so on. You kind of plowed right into that question. And your answer was, it shouldn't be a choice between the two of them. Well, the reality is they're all persuadable voters, but you have two different persuasion questions. One is persuading them to share your ideology and the other is to persuade them to do something about their shared ideology. 
my belief was that you had to be able to do both. We know that people of color are more likely to be Democrats, and we know that white voters are more likely to be Republican. But we know that white women who are single tend to tend towards Democrats more than they tend towards Republicans. And we know the people who have encountered Trump sometimes recognize that this is a terrible, terrible thing, and they want to change their minds. And so our campaign did three things. Number one, we centered communities of color and acknowledged their needs because our responsibility was to persuade them that voting could work, that if they stood up and showed up, they could have the change they needed. Our second job was to talk to persuadable white voters, meaning people who could be persuaded that the outcomes that they expected from the previous administration, whether it was state or federal, that they could get more if they elected me. And the third was to tell the truth and to tell the same story to both communities. Because part of what happens is that we spend so much time trying to game one group or convince one group that we are in alliance that we hope they don't whisper to the other group what we've said. And the reality is in today's society, everyone hears you, whether you intended it or not. And so my responsibility was to tell the same story, to share the same value system, no matter where I was. And what got treated as this hyper-progressive behavior, it was progressive for Georgia. It's progressive for a lot of swaths of the country. It's progressive for the Midwest. But some of it is the basics of humanity. We should not die from curable disease because of lack of health care. You should not starve. Your family should not be homeless if you are working a full-time job. There are basics we can fix. You should not put people in prison because you're mad at them. You should only incarcerate people for extended periods of time because we're afraid of them. And there should be pathways back to redemption. There should be opportunities to mitigate the harms of undereducation and underinvestment. And what I did differently was that I had that same conversation in Atlanta and majority black communities, in Dalton, Georgia, with majority Latino communities, and when I went to the place where they filmed Deliverance. I went everywhere and told the same story everywhere. Now, I adapted what I did to make sure they knew I understood their specific challenges, but I never tried to pretend to be something else because where we lose as Democrats is when we think that pretense is how we win, as opposed to authentic conversation about what we will do. As I said, you lost very narrowly uh, in that race, and it went on for some time uh, as uh, absentee ballots and provisional ballots were cast. You were in the awkward position of having your opponent essentially be the arbiter of the process. And there were, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of questions about that. So it was a it was a tough loss. How you you've been successful right along. How did you deal with that loss? Because it, you know you pour everything into something, and then you come up narrowly and narrowly in a way because you because maybe the system was gamed a bit against you. I would say that the system was rigged against the voters of Georgia. Georgians faced unprecedented levels of purging. They had difficulty getting on the rolls. There were so many precincts shut down that an independent analysis by the AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, said that between 54 and 85,000 people simply could not cast a ballot. We had some of the highest rates of rejection of absentee ballots and provisional ballots. And while I was the name on the ticket, 
it was the voters of Georgia who faced the brunt of what happened. And so in the 10 days between election day and my non-concession day, my job was to one, fight for their votes, to fight to make certain that each person who tried to cast a ballot or the 80,000 people who called in because they faced challenges voting in Georgia, that they knew that we had fought as hard as we could to make sure their voices were heard. But the reality is, it goes back to the beginning of this conversation. I believe in the right to vote. I believe that that has power and meaning, that it is a sacred act that should not be thwarted by anyone. And I personally was offended and hurt. I went through all of the stages of grief. I tried to do them as efficiently as possible. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time with anger, got really comfortable there. But then I added what I like to say is an eighth step, which I call plotting. And that was about me figuring out, no, I was not going to be governor. The person in charge of counting the ballots, he was likely going to win because he had been thinking about how to steal votes longer than I'd been thinking about how to win them. My responsibility then was to do what my parents raised me to do, which is if you see a problem, how do you fix it? And so I wanted to fix three problems. One was access to democracy. That was about making sure that people had the right to vote, that it was protected, and that we fought back against any system that would not let people's votes count. And that was fair fight. The second was that I, was, I came into the leadership as Democratic leader the year after the census, so in November of the 2010 census. We were rolled on the census. There were so many communities that were not counted in Georgia and around the country. And I think we had, as a progressive community, as a liberal community, we had ignored the mechanism. And Republicans were going to weaponize it. They did it in 2010. They were going to do it again in 2020. And so I wanted to create an organization that focused like a laser on the census because it's how we deploy resources and how we deploy power. This is another area of concern, uh, given the COVID-19 situation. How, how concerned are you that, that this will impact the count negatively? They've extended the census, but census workers are going to have trouble going out and doing what they've done traditionally. So we started, so Fair Count is one of the few organizations in the country that does nothing but census work all day. We realized that when the census was going to be 80% online and between 20 and 40% of Georgians don't have access to the internet, we installed Wi-Fi devices in 139 locations throughout Georgia to make sure they could do so. We built a field organizing team in 2019 to deploy in 2020, so they were already on the ground getting to know communities, building capacity with faith communities and others. We are now shifting all of our work to be done by text and phone banking, but we know that there has to, and we've also expanded our digital budget. We've got a grant from Comcast and we're doing more ads. But the reality is the extension of time is a good thing to collect information. It is a danger, however, when it comes to what happens afterwards, because a, de a delay in delivering information on the census means a delay in the allocation of power and an attempt to game the system. For example, just today, there was a report from Hansi Lo Wong at NPR that they are going to issue block level data on citizenship, even though it's not the question on the census, by giving them more time, they're going to try to aggregate this data. What this means is that states that do not have a constitutional protection will be able to ignore non-citizen voting age people when they are drawing their districts.
which means if you live in a district with children and with the undocumented, they can ignore all of those people and only count those who are 18 or over who are citizens. That means the shift in power that will decimate communities of color, which tend to aggregate. So we are very worried and we're worried that people aren't paying enough attention. So I'm spending a lot of time, as is the organization, fighting that issue. And the third thing we created, I created, was called the Southern Economic Advancement Project, because I believe that we have to learn how to translate progressive policy into Southern. I think there, there is more we can do, but we have to recognize where we are and we have to understand the impediments. And so I've created three multi-state, multi-million dollar organizations, stood them up, and we're doing the work. And that's what I've been doing since I didn't become governor. So you talked about what attracted you to legislating, but you had a chance to run there, not, not one, but two seats in play in Georgia in 2020. You were the object of everyone's affections on the Democratic side, trying to persuade you to run because they saw you as the strongest possible candidate. Uh, you didn't run. Why didn't you run? Number one, I think you run for office because you want to do the work, not because you want the title and not because it's the next step in the progression of political need. And for me, I, I don't want to be in the Senate. <laughs> I think that the Senate is critical. I think that we can win a Senate seat in Georgia, but I do not want to serve in the Senate. That is not what drives me. I believe in directly fixing problems. And that's more an executive role than it is a legislative role. It's a critical role, but it's not my bent. But the second piece is, I'm not the only person who can win in Georgia. It is hubris to think that because of what I accomplished in 2018, that I'm the only one who can, because it lets everyone else off the hook. We can win Georgia if we do the work I did. We wrote the playbook. We showed us how it could be done. But I'm not the only candidate who can talk to people and organize them and raise money. And I'm going to work with every Democratic candidate in both of those races. Raphael Warnock, who's running in the Kelly Loeffler seat, and whoever wins the primary in the Purdue seat, I will be working with them cheek by jowl to make sure they win. You know, hubris isn't unheard of in politics. I just want to... <laughs> and speaking of that, you've been mentioned as a candidate for vice president. Potentially, Vice President Biden has said he will choose a woman. Uh, your name is prominently mentioned, but you've taken a different approach than is, is, is normal uh, in that you, you have been very open about why you think you would be a good choice. And your campaign manager wrote a, uh, a piece this morning in the New York Times that very prominently talked about how you know how to win the, the White House and taking the Georgia formula and, and going national. And it seems like a very intentional effort to make sure that people don't forget about you uh, as this conversation goes on. Tell me why you've been so forward leaning on this. In March of 2019, I was meeting with all of the presidential candidates to talk to them about Fair Fight and what we were doing, what we were building. And I was talking to them about the importance of Georgia. I had lunch with this guy named Joe Biden, vice president, former vice president of the United States. Immediately after that lunch, speculation started about whether he had asked me to run as his VP in the primary. And for the first time that I can find, I was being bombarded with those questions. I could not go on a television show to talk about the work I was doing. Did he ask you? No, he did not. And, <laughs> and that was part of the reality. But then I kept getting the question because the speculation was brewing. 
also gave the, the response to the president uh, in 2019 to his uh, State of the Union speech, and that was very well received. That had a little buzz going as well. And I was I was doing my best because I needed to lift the issue of voter suppression to a level we had not seen in the United States because I was deeply concerned about what Republicans were going to do to steal the elections in 2020. But here we are, Stacey. Here we are now, and your name is, is being mentioned, and you still want it to be mentioned. Well, and, and so let me tell you why. So starting in March of 2019, I almost routinely got the question. I try to be as transparent as possible because I grew up watching politicians who fainted and ducked and did not respond. And as a reporter, you know what I'm talking about. So if you look at my entire history in politics, I tend to be fairly straight, as straightforward as I can be as transparent as possible, as long as it doesn't violate another responsibility that I have. And even then, I do my best to make sure people know why I'm saying what I'm saying. But as I also said earlier, my responsibility is never to deny my capacity because I'm not speaking for myself. I don't look like what people are used to seeing in positions of power. And when a woman or a person of color pretends to not want or not be capable, there isn't this notion that they're just being coy. There's the idea that they're telling the truth. We don't get the benefit of the doubt. We don't get treated as being diffident. We get treated as being insufficient. And so when I'm asked the question, do you want, can you do? I'm going to be very clear about my response. Now, we have moved into the phase where there is actually going to be a decision made about who will be the running mate. And yes, I have, ad, I have admirers and advocates who are putting out information about it. But I will say this about Lauren Grow-Wargo's piece in the New York Times. We cannot win the White House if we do not treat communities of color as viable and valuable persuasion targets. If we replicate what we have done in years past, with the notable exception of 2008 and 2012, if we do not invest early and consistently in their participation in our elections, we will lose. With COVID-19 depressing communities, fear is not enough. These are communities that need to know that there's someone who sees them and understands that the systemic inequities they face cannot be fixed simply by getting a new president. They have to know that the next president wants to help them and understands their problems. Do you think that, I mean, one thing about 2008 and 2012 was it was helpful to have an African-American candidate named Barack Obama at the top of the ticket. Do you think that uh, in order to maximize turnout in those communities that uh, he should look to a, a candidate of color on the ticket? Is that important to send a signal to those communities? I, I do think it is an important signal to have someone of color on the ticket for three reasons. I have the deepest respect for every woman who is being talked about and who should be considered for this post. But I know that for communities of color, particularly for the black community, there has got to be a recognition that their needs are met. And we have to have candidates who are able to not only speak to them, but turn them out. I think that Vice President Biden has the deepest respect from the black community. But there is a difference between based on the turnout in the in the or at least the numbers in the primary. Absolutely. But you and I both know that primary voters are not the same as general election voters. General election voters do not pay attention to politics with the intensity that primary voters do. And there has to be an intentionality to turning them out. A lot of folks can do that. I'm one of those people. 
and I have proven it by turning out more people of color in an election than anyone in 2018 did. Not by rate, but by raw number. You served for 11 years in the Georgia House, and that is your, I mean, you've had a lot of experiences. You've started businesses. You've you've worked with the nonprofit community. We've talked about a lot of the things that you've done. But the experience question will come up, and no one in modern history or probably in history generally has had that kind of experience and gotten elected on a national ticket. So should people not be concerned about that? No, I I would say this. Being a governor does not guarantee your capacity. Look at George George W. Bush. Being a senator doesn't guarantee your capacity. Look at former Senator Nixon. We know that it is about competence, it is about skills, and it's about capacity. And if you look at my resume, not as at the top lines, but at the skills that I've developed and the work that I've done, I've set up a multinational infrastructure to defend the right to vote in the United States of America, an unprecedented development, something that we accomplished working at the federal, state, and local levels. I have built organizations. I have led groups. And I do think it's a legitimate question to say, can someone do the job? But I think it's an illegitimate frame to say that these are the only ways you can prove it, in part because of this. It's, I read it in someone else's op-ed, but if the, only pre, if the prerequisites to holding this job mean that you either have to be a U.S. senator or a governor, that means that only two black women in American history have ever qualified. I do not believe that is true. And I recognize that we have seen iconoclastic responses to electing people. Joe Biden became a senator at 29, and President Barack Obama became a president after two years in the Senate. I'm not comparing myself to either person, but what I am saying is that we have to have a broader vision of what leadership can look like if we want to meet the challenges of tomorrow. Finally, your brother, Walter, you know, as we talked about, you have a family of high achievers, people who've accomplished a lot. He's had struggles in his life. He has bipolar disorder and he's had drug problems and he's spent time in prison. But when did those problems evidence themselves and how did they affect your life and your outlook on life? And I ask you as someone in my own family has been touched by mental illness and suicide. And so I, I have a, some sense of this, but I'm, I'm wondering what your experience has been. Walter is the fifth of the six of us. He is the youngest boy, and he was the most mischievous, the most exuberant. He is brilliant. Walter has this amazing capacity for spatial reasoning that used to surprise all of us. He could see something and figure out how it went together. He was smart. He is smart. Uh, He was in high school when he started getting into more and more trouble, and his teachers tried to basically treat him as just another bad black boy. My parents knew enough to know that their child was smart, and they refused to let him be pushed out of college prep classes, and Walter was admitted to Morehouse College. My brother's challenge was that we didn't have health insurance, and we lived in a school district that didn't have counselors, that didn't have the ability to diagnose what was early-onset bipolar disorder. What to them looked like bad behavior was a young man trying to grapple with mental health, and he did what so many young people did. He self-medicated, first with alcohol and then with drugs that got harder and harder. My brother lived with me during his last year in college. And I 
I hold myself responsible for not seeing some of the signs that I now know to look for. But in our community, in so many communities, we don't talk about mental health. We don't understand that depression is one of the sides of manic behavior and that bipolar disorder manifests in different ways. I chided him about his classes. I tried to make sure he was doing his work and he was suffering and he was using. I got him into rehab again and again once he dropped out of college. I got him lawyers when he got in trouble. And finally, I realized that my job, that our family's job was not to fix Walter. Our job was to support him and to help him fix himself. But that meant that he had to have all of the resources. And when you've been to jail in the South or in America, when you leave, you lose your health insurance, you lose your right to a job, you lose your right to good housing. And the very situations that tend to lead people to prison manifest themselves again and again because recidivism is created in part because people can never re-enter society. My mission is to recognize that my sister Leslie, who is a federal judge, and my brother Walter, who is an ex-offender, are not a story of good and bad. They are a story of America, and my responsibility is to make certain that every Walter has a chance to become a Leslie, and that every Leslie who falters does not have to become a Walter, and if she does, that she has a pathway back. That is why I do what I do, because I know that Walter has been surrounded by love and opportunity and that we've been able to lift him up. But for every Walter that I can serve, there is someone who does not have that chance and who was thrown away. And that is a loss to all of us. And whether you're black or white, Latino or Asian Pacific Islander, if you're Native American, no matter who you are, you deserve to be able to have opportunity, even if you've made mistakes. That's what I do. And, and that's what I work towards. Stacey Abrams, it's great to be with you. Thank you for this time. Good luck in all your pursuits, and uh, we will see you down the line. Thank you so much, David, for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.